Be seated. All right, well, if you've got a Bible, open it with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, we are finishing up a series today on the life of Joseph. And um, today we're going to get a look at Joseph's heart a little bit this morning and, uh, and see with all that Joseph went through that we've studied over the last several weeks that when we come to the end of his story in Genesis, there is no bitterness, there is no grudges, no sour attitude about his lot in life, no bitterness towards God, no bitterness towards man. God had done a, a great and incredible work in and through Joseph, but also in his heart. Um, you know, years ago, I was at a conference and I heard the late, great uh, Dr. John Phillips preach, and he pointed out how God only spends a couple of chapters in the book of Genesis explaining creation, right? You know, you got the first couple of ch chapters there that recount creation for us, and, and just a few words on something as magnificent as the, the creation of the stars, but when you, in the, the, you know, the, the universe around us, but when you get to the life of Joseph a man many consider one of the most godly characters in all of the Bible. Uh, the Lord devotes some 12 chapters to Joseph. Roughly 25% of Genesis involves the life of Joseph. And as John Phillips said, in the only way he could, God is more interested in making saints than stars. And I believe that to be true. And that Joseph's life story is an example for us and how God works in the lives of his people to accomplish his purposes. God is at work in your life today if you're a believer. And whether you're on the mountain or you're in the valley or somewhere in between, going down the sliding down the mountain on your backside or climbing the mountain best as you can uh, with every tool you got, um, God's with you. And he's with you in those moments and he's working in your life. He thinks of you, he loves you, and he has a purpose for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus. He is working for your good and he is working for his glory. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, who wouldn't want to know a God like that who wants to be intimately acquainted with you in every detail of your life, working for your good? Well, at the end of Joseph's story, he is a man free of bitterness and grudges. Now, you might remember up to this point in Joseph's life, he's been through some stuff, okay? Um, I dare say uh, that he's had a harder life than probably most, if not all of us in the room, uh, to some degree or another. Not that we're measuring that, but here's a guy who was betrayed by his brothers, right? They plotted his murder, decided not to murder him. Instead, they throw him down in a pit. They sell him into slavery to never see him again. They go tell his dad that he's dead. Once a slave, he finally makes his way up the ranks and he's the head of the household underneath his, underneath his boss. But then his boss's wife tries to seduce him when he resists the temptation. She accuses him of a crime he didn't commit and he finds himself in prison. So he goes from slavery to prison. And then finally, through God's gift to him of being able to interpret dreams, he finds himself standing before Pharaoh. At that point, it had been about 13 years. Not sure exactly how that's divided up between slavery and jail, uh, but neither good options. And so about 13 years in either slavery or jail and some combination of those two before he rises to power as the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And God uses all that he did, all that happened in Joseph's life, and evil that, even the evil that was committed against him by his brothers to save his people. And what's happening is we know as we get on the, the New Testament, we know that what has happened is God through Joseph's life has saved, the, preserved the messianic line, right? The line through which Jesus is going to come. And so this is a big deal. Um, Joseph is just a small cog in a wheel. There's a much bigger story being told, and Joseph seems to understand that. I don't think he understood that right from the beginning, but in the course of his life he had come to know that. 
And when we come to Genesis chapter 50, um, Joseph's dad, Jacob, has died. And that's a big deal, right? And uh, you're, this is the man known as Israel, okay? He has died, and his sons are getting ready, for, have had his funeral when we come to this point. The funeral's over, right? They're kind of moving past that. Uh, they're, they're done, everybody's done bringing them meals and all that kind of stuff. Huge funeral takes place throughout all of Egypt. And now, because of it, was, because it was Joseph's dad, and Joseph's like, you know, number two guy in Egypt. And now here is Jacob, he's dead, and this is kind of a point of crisis. Um, the brothers, are gonna, we're going to see this morning, are going to freak out a little bit. Because in their mind, they're thinking, you know, dad loved Joseph, and Joseph loved dad. And what if all this peacekeeping and forgiveness was all just because, you know, for dad? But now dad's gone. So look with me at Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and cried, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. After this, we get the story of Jacob, excuse me, Joseph's death. But So in this point in the story, we've got Jacob's death and we've got this little snippet of what happens between there and Joseph's death sometime later. And with the funeral over and life kind of transitioning to some version of normal after this, fear is now in their hearts because they're thinking, what if Joseph has been faking it this whole time? What if, what if the forgiveness was pretend? What if it was only for dad's sake, right? Because at the end of the day, in their mind, they're thinking what we did was really unforgivable, right? That, that's what's really in their minds. What, what we did was so wrong, there's no way the forgiveness can be real. There's no way that somebody could really let go of that. What, and Joseph, you've got to remember, he's a powerful man. Other, other, uh, you could probably make the argument that other than Pharaoh, he might be the most powerful man in the world at this time. I mean, he, he's number two in what was the world superpower of that day. And so if he wanted revenge, he could have revenge. If he wanted revenge, revenge would be his, and it would be oh so sweet if that's what he wanted. But that's, we're going to find out that's not at all, as we see here, that's not at all what he wanted. Let me ask you, have you ever, can you identify with... Joseph's brothers on some level. Have you ever been there in some way? Done something you thought was unforgivable? Maybe towards others, maybe towards God? Have you ever thought, can I really be forgiven of that? Can God really forgive that? Can they really forgive that? And the good news of the Bible teaches this morning, that the gospel teaches this morning, is that God can forgive you no matter what you've done, and that people can actually forgive when they've been changed by the gospel. And so, because of the power of the gospel, you can be forgiven, and the church can forgive people, Christians can forgive people, forgiveness is a beautiful thing, and it's possible because of the gospel, and so no matter what you've done, and, 
and man, they're, they, they've reconciled, but they're, they're fearful here that the reconciliation's fake. And you can imagine with all these years passing by, how they had feared this day. Just think about that for a moment. They have lived several years at this point, likely, thinking, what if it's fake? What about the day dad dies? What's going to happen to us? And just continually being haunted by their past, even though they've been forgiven of it, right? And when Joseph gets the message from the brothers and from his dead father, he weeps. He weeps. He weeps at the thought that they think he's not genuine in his forgiveness. He, he weeps at the thought that they still live in fear of his wrath. He weeps at the thought that his dad would even think it necessary to send a message like this. Some people debate that they concoct this or was it real. Joseph seems to accept it as real, but we, we, you know, that's all we've got to go on. But Joseph's heart is free of a grudge. That's what they're worried about, right? What if he's been holding a grudge? And Joseph's heart's free of that. There's, and there's no bitterness. He's not bitter at God, right? God meant it for good. He's not bitter at them. Yeah, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Don't worry. He speaks kindly to them. He provides for them and their little ones, for them and their children. There's no bitterness in his heart towards them or to, towards God, even though his lot in life was difficult. And here's the thing. God is with Joseph. Remember, that's the theme of the series. God is with Joseph. And he was with Joseph when he was battling temptation. And he was with Joseph when he was in a pit. And he was with Joseph when he was in prison. And he's always been with Joseph. And Joseph doesn't need revenge. He's got God. And Joseph doesn't need a grudge. He has God. And Joseph has no room for bitterness because he's, he's full of, of God. He's, he's walking with God. God is with Joseph and enabling him to not walk in a life of bitterness and, and regret, but to walk in forgiveness and to walk with joy. I, I think we can see how we too, as we look at this passage, can live a, a life free of bitterness, a life free of grudges. We see kind of in Joseph the heart of a forgiver the heart of a reconciler, the heart of a man at peace with God and others. And these things are all things that the gospel of Jesus produces in his people. And so here's how we can live. What I want to talk to you about this morning is how we can live a life free of bitterness. Here's how we can pursue a life free of bitterness. Four things this morning that we need to pursue if we want to pursue that kind of life. Number one, we need to refuse to play God. We need to refuse to play God. Joseph, in his response to them, says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? The first thing that jumps out here, right, is that he refuses to put himself in God's place, to put himself in the role of God in his life. They come to him, they're kind of treating him like God, right? They're bowing down to him and submitting to him, fulfilling his dreams all over again. They're committing themselves as his servants, right? Everybody else at this point in this part of the world is enslaved to Egypt, right? They all run out of grain and they're having to go to Egypt. And if you read the story, they run out of money to buy grain with and finally they just have to start giving their land away and committing themselves to serve. But and so they, who are they really coming to? They're, yeah, to, to Pharaoh, but who's the one really managing all this? Everybody's surrendering, kind of becoming enslaved, if you will, to Joseph. But he refuses to allow this to happen with his family. Am I in the place of God? Joseph knew that it was God's place to first of all avenge and not his. He also knew that God had a plan and it was not his place to question what God had allowed to happen and, what God was, and the way God had chosen to work. Jo Joseph refused to question God or to play God. He refused to pretend that he had God's power or authority or knowledge. He refused to fail to acknowledge God in every area of his life. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament tells the church at Rome in Romans 12, 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In whose hands is it to repay evil? God's. God's. It's not in my hand, it's not in your hand, it's not the place of the believer to avenge themselves when wronged. We understand that God is the judge. God will sort everything out. It's not our role to play God. Bitter people sometimes are people that are vengeful people. Longing to get even with people that have done them wrong. And truth is, many times you never get the opportunity. So what do you do? You just grow more and more bitter and more and more hard-hearted. And you may get the opportunity and then you find out by inflicting pain on others because you got the opportunity to get them back, you realize that does nothing to alleviate the pain that you feel. And you just grow more and more bitterness. You get stuck in this cycle. You know, another way we play God is not just by trying to avenge, but by doubting God. And Joseph could have done this. He could have questioned, how could a God that loves me and who is with me and before me allow all this in my life? But he didn't. He didn't do that. And we play God when we take his matters into our hands and when we doubt him and assume that we know better than he does. Or when we question his character. We're play acting like, like we're better, would be better at being God than he is, even though we might not verbalize it that way. You know, have you ever played the kind of the what if game, the, the, the if I were game, right? We do that sometimes with politics, like if I were the president, right? You're not, you know. If I were the teacher at the school, you're not, unless you are, you know. If I were the boss, right? We do that. That's just, that's just, that's just it's kind of human nature to kind of question when we see whether it's people in authority or people in leadership and things like that. We, we, it's, it's, it's human nature to do that. If I were the coach, if I were the teacher, if I were the boss, if I were the governor, if I were the mayor, if I were the pastor, you're not. But listen, we do that with God too. We don't just do it with people. All the doing that, right, and the way we cast that on in our relationships with others is just it's just a deeper issue that's really at work. We we a lot of times what we throw onto other people, right? We are actually we we tend to do that with God as well. We just don't verbalize it in the same way. It's not polite to say it out loud, especially as a believer. But in your soul, there's a tendency to it. Adam and Eve did it. They wanted to be like God, right? That was part of the temptation. God doesn't want you to be like Him, right? You, you do this, you'll, you'll be like God. You'll know everything God knows. You know what? I think I'd make a pretty good God. That's what they thought. It's a recipe for destruction. And this is a recipe for cultivating bitterness into your life, bitterness towards others because you can't move on. You're too busy longing for revenge and, and bitterness towards God because you're walking in doubt and rebellion and not faith in Him because you're, you're playing God. And I'm convinced a lot of people that are bitter about their past either think, God, why did you let this happen? And they're blaming God. Or, if I could, I would. And they spend all their time thinking that, undo this, and if I could do this, and if I could do that. Do you have a place of bitterness in your life this morning? Do you find yourself trying to take matters into your own hands, being vengeful and getting even if you've been wronged by someone, plotting revenge? Or maybe just in your circumstances, doubting God, questioning His wisdom. A good way to, to judge this sometimes is, have you imagined yourself telling somebody off lately? Right? That's a, that's a, that's a good way of knowing if we're, if we're really kind of vengeful in our hearts. We find ourselves in an argument that's not even real. Thinking, man, if I would have just said this at work, or if I would have just said this to my spouse, or if I would have just said, you know, and we kind of, and we have this little argument going on in our head. I've done that before. Right? 
And when we do those sort of things, when we feel like we've been wronged and we find ourselves kind of having these little things in our head, it just shows that we're allowing ourselves, if we're not careful, to cultivate a heart of bitterness. And if you're holding a grudge, you're plotting revenge, you're doubting God's wisdom, you're putting yourself in the place of God. And you can't do that and walk in the fear of the Lord. See, the gospel transforms us. The good news of Jesus and what he's done in dying for sinners and being raised from the dead, that gospel transforms us. It saves us from our Adam-like tendency to play God. It also reminds us that God is a just judge and that he's the one that's in absolute total control, not us, that we're not God. See, a resurrected king doesn't need anyone to, to, be, to, um, to, to pretend to be him. He doesn't need their help. And so the gospel reminds us that it is God who is God, not us, and transforms us into a people who run away from that Adam-like tendency to be God and to submit and surrender to God and his will. So refuse to play God. Number two, acknowledge the wrong done and extend forgiveness. This applies if, if, if you're dealing with a situation of bitterness in an area where someone did something wrong to you. They betray you, they wronged you in some way. In verse 20, Joseph says to them, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. See, Joseph didn't sweep their sin under the rug. He didn't pretend nothing happened. He didn't say, well, let's not bring that up. It wouldn't be polite for me to mention that. He actually called their intentions, their very motives evil. He didn't just say a bad thing happened to me. He said, that was your, you did that on purpose. Your, Your plan, your purpose, your motive was to do me wrong. You meant it for evil. Think about the gravity of what he's saying. He is in no way making light of it. And here's the thing, if we don't call a spade a spade, if we leave more, if we, all we do is we leave more room for bitterness when we do that, if we, if we don't acknowledge when wrong has been done. Part of justice is calling the sin, sin. When it's, when it's a situation where it's just, it's just got to be dealt with. If someone did evil to you, it's okay to say, you did evil to me. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say that was wrong. It's okay to say that was sin. In fact, in Matthew 18, if it's impeding your relationship, impeding your relationship with that person, Jesus commands you to go to them and to confront them over it. Sometimes sin does that, and it gets in the way of the relationship. And yeah, they should go to us and make it right, but if they're not willing to, we should go to them and make it right. We talked a little bit about that last week. But we have to be willing to acknowledge when evil has been done. You know, Joseph could have thought, you know, I was dad's favorite. Maybe it was my fault. Maybe somehow I I asked for all of this. You know, victims do that sometimes. They blame themselves. But Joseph didn't do that. He doesn't blame himself for this because it wasn't his fault. It was their fault. (laughs) It's It's not always both people's fault. Sometimes someone just did something wicked. And here, that's what happened here. Joseph, there was nothing Joseph had done. Even if Joseph was an arrogant little punk kid, and I don't think he was, but even if he was, he didn't deserve to be thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. That's not just in any way. It was wicked. But victims many times will blame themselves, but Joseph didn't do that. He called their sin, sin. And his, his dad's favoritism didn't justify their murderous plot or selling him into slavery. Two wrongs wouldn't make a right. And if you've been done wrong... You don't have to act like it didn't happen. You can confront that and say, this was wrong. You say, well, I don't have the opportunity to confront the person and say it was wrong. Well, okay, at least admit it to yourself. There's something about just acknowledging the fact that evil happened here. It's part of the healing. And if you don't, you may just grow bitter, feeling that what happened to you was never acknowledged as wrong. See, 
Playing God and pretending like nothing happened, both of those things, neither one of them lead to a happy heart. Both of them just create, a, create, create an environment where bitterness can grow. If you went to the doctor and the doctor said, here's what's wrong, you know, X is wrong, and you need to do Y to fix it, and if you don't do Y, it's not going to get fixed. You're just going to stay that way. And you leave out of there and you go home and your spouse says, hey, what do the doctor say? Oh, he says, says I'm fine. Is that going to help the situation? And you just kind of go through life and you just ignore. You know, Nothing's wrong, right? Is that going to make the situation better? Of course not, right? Some things ha- have to be dealt with. And it's the same way when evil has been done. It has to be just ignoring the problem and not calling sin, sin, and not dealing with it doesn't make it go away. It doesn't bring healing. Let me ask you, does God sweep our sin under the rug? Is that how he forgives? Is that how, is that how he moves past our sin? Is he just going, yeah, he's going to put it over here and hide it? No. That's not how he did it. Yeah, he covers it. But how did he cover it? By uncovering it. Right? Right? I mean, when we have an example in the cross, God takes our sin, and man, can there be a greater way to expose it? And God deals with it directly, and he takes it upon himself in Christ Jesus. And he bears the guilt, and he bears the shame, but the sin has to be dealt with. And we don't get to, we don't get to be forgiven without acknowledging our sin to God and repenting of our sin. Sin has to be dealt with. The cross teaches us that. And because of the cross, sin can be dealt with. That's the good news. And it can be wiped away and it can be put away and it can be cast as far as the east is from the west the cross tells us that but in, at the same time while God deals with sin like that he also he, he does forgive he forgives because of the cross Jesus took care of our sin and when we get peace with God the, that sin is gone the record is tossed out and we have to when we're wrong be willing to both acknowledge the wrong done and even confront if need be but at the same time extend forgiveness if we've been wrong If you call sin, sin, right, but you refuse to forgive, you sound more like the accuser of the brethren than the crucified and resurrected Christ. That's what Satan does. Sinner, sinner, sinner. You know what you, remember what you did? You remember what you did? You remember what you did a year ago? You remember what you did 10 years ago? You remember what you did 20 years? You remember what you did to that person? You remember that time you thought this? You remember that time you did that? That's Satan. And he doesn't offer forgiveness. He's the accuser. Jesus yeah, he'll expose our sin to us, but then he offers forgiveness. And so when we go around and we just bring people's sin up and point it out to them and we don't forgive them, we're acting a lot more like Satan than Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to, yes, call wrong, wrong, and sin, sin, but also to forgive. Number three, trust God is good, faithful, and providentially at work in your life. Trust that God is good, faithful, and providentially at work. He says to them, not only did you mean it for evil, he says, God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. When he says God meant it for good, he's contrasting it, right, with how they meant it. You meant it this way, God meant it this way. Your intentions, your plan was evil. God's intentions, God's plan was good. At the very core, Joseph believed and trusted that God is good, that his intentions are good, that his motives are good, that God is a good God. See, the great battle of life is the battle over what you believe about God. Every day you're fighting that battle. The, mo- the most important thing ultimately that really ever happens in a human being's life is when they, det- when, when they settle what they believe about God and whether they believe God can be trusted or not and whether they believe God is good or not. And at the core, we are always choosing that, whether to trust God and believe He's good or to, or to not do that. 
And this was the core of the battle in the Garden of Good and Eden. The Garden of, um, the Garden of Eden. When they had to choose whether to eat from the tree of the, uh, of tree of, uh, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or not. That's why I say it's, it's the core battle in life. It, it, that's where it all started. That what was really happening there is Adam and Eve was having to decide when they were being tempted by Satan, do I really think God's good? He had told them, don't eat of that tree. The serpent said, oh, just, he just doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding you back is basically what the serpent was saying. He's keeping something from you. He, he's jealous. He don't want you to be like him. He's, he's withholding a good thing from you. If God is good, though, he knew best and was not withholding a good thing from Adam and Eve. And they chose in their hearts to stop believing that God was good and they took matters into their own hands. But th the reason they did that was they stopped in that moment thinking God knows best and he's good. He's got my best intentions at heart. Because if they really believed that, they wouldn't have tasted the fruit that God said it won't be good for you to do that. But they stopped believing in the goodness of God. And you and I do that every time we sin. For a moment, we think he's not quite as good as he could be. When we do what God says don't do, or we refuse to do what he commands us to do, we're saying in that moment, God, you're not quite as good as you could be. This is better. Me being in charge is better. Me making this decision is better. What this offers me is better. The, the prosperity or the pleasure or the feeling or whatever it is that I get from this is better. The acclaim that I get from this is better. There's something better than you and we stop believing that God is as good as he could be. Something becomes better to us than God in that moment. Don't we see this kind of battle happen with, with our kids, right? Growing up, you, you warn your children, I don't do that. And daily you see that battle. Does mom, does dad know best? I've got, I've got a soon-to-be six, a soon-to-be four, and a just-turned-one-year-old. And two of the three, or, or really all three, are fighting that battle every day. Does mom, does dad really know best? You know, I kind of think I know better. Or, as they get older, you just don't want me to have any fun. You're not like, so-and-so's parents... They let them do that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just like the progress that we see, and we see it from kid to teenager, and it's just always this battle of, do I think my parents know best? Do I think they have my best will at heart? Do I think they have good intentions towards me? Or are they just old, yeah, are they just old sourpusses? What in the world's going on here? And there's this little battle going on, and it's just, at the micro level, it's just an examination of what's really happening in their heart also towards God. Because a lot of times we, like I mentioned earlier, what's going on in our heart towards God will put on other authority figures in our lives. If you truly believe God is good, it, it guards your heart against all temptation, including bitterness against God. Because you know, whatever happens, God's intentions, His motives are for good. You say, yeah, pastor, He's good. But some people ain't. And that's bad grammar, but that's good theology. It's true. He is good. But some people aren't. In fact, none of us are, apart from Jesus transforming us from the inside out. And that's true. But to help you guard against bitterness towards people, you need to also believe God is powerfully at work in your life. That He's providentially and powerfully working for your good. For Joseph, he realized God was working through him to save many lives. He realized God was saving his family, the people of God. He states that in chapter 45. He saw that God had a purpose and that God's providence was at work. That God was guiding and that God was, God's good will and his good intentions were powerfully at work in his life to bring about God's purposes and that ultimately God's purposes would be good. And that kept him from being bitter towards others. 
See, when you believe God is good and providentially at work in your life, it helps ward off bitterness. The key verse in the New Testament that we repeat often around here is Romans 8, 28. Let me read to you from Romans 8, 28 through 30. It's not a trite verse. It's not some simple copy cuff cup verse. I mean, we just kind of throw this verse around. Um, Jesus died to make this verse true. Look with me at 8, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. They call that the unbreaking chain of redemption. That once God begins to work in you, he's going to finish it. And the God who justifies you is ultimately going to glorify you. So when you read Romans 8, 28, and you say, well, for those that love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that means everything that happens to me is going to feel good. No, that doesn't what it means at all. That means I'm going to understand all this. right? No, it doesn't really mean that either. What it means is you've got to read the whole thing. Is that his ultimate plan for you is going to be accomplished. And that's going to be good for you. And his ultimate good for you is going to be accomplished. And that in the end, when all is said and done, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, you're going to understand it was all worth it somehow. And you're going to say, well, what is that good? He says, it's very simple. That you're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And if you disconnect Romans 8.28 from Romans 8.29, you've completely misapplied it to your life. It's worthless without it. You take Romans 8.28 and you take it away from Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and gospel transformation in your heart and life to be made to the conformity of Christ. You've disconnected it from its entire purpose. And you can't claim that. It's rooted in the fact that God is working in your heart and in your life to ultimately make you like Jesus. And that might mean, what that means is in this life there may be suffering and there may be pain. In fact, there will be. And, if, and, and some people have more of that than others, unfortunately. But Genesis 50 verse 20 and Romans 8 28 are like cousin verses, okay? They're related. So when Joseph says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, man, he, he is man, he's throwing something forward to us because Romans 8 28, man, it's catching that shadow. God is working for your good and that good is ultimately to make you more like Jesus because that's what was happening. That's the good that God was doing in Joseph's life is he was bringing about what was going to happen to make Romans 8.28 possible, right? The cross, the messianic line being preserved so Jesus could die for our sins and be raised from the dead. It's all linked together in God's grand plan of redemption. That's the big story that's being told and that's what makes sense of our lives is when we understand that what God is ultimately doing in our lives and in the world is reconciling us to himself, making things right between us and him, but also conforming us to the image of his son. So what's he working to do? He's working to make us more like Jesus. And that's amazing. See, to Joseph, his brother's evil did not trump God's goodness or God's providence. He believed God was better than his brothers were evil. And that God was more powerful than his brothers in accomplishing his purpose. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. Uh, author Randy Alcorn says in one of his books, he tells the story of being a kid 
and seeing his mom bake a cake, right? And seeing all the ingredients going in and thinking how gross that was going to taste, right? He sees raw egg go in. He sees flour go in. And like, he's thinking, this is going to be disgusting, right? And then in the end, she stirs it all together like you do, and all of a sudden it starts smelling good and bakes, puts it in the oven, and all of a sudden now it's a cake, right? It's not a cake until the end. Before, it's just a bunch of gunk. But once you put all that stuff together, if, if you're like me and you like to cheat and you like to taste ahead, it starts tasting pretty good once they're all mixed together. But I don't want raw egg by itself, and I don't want flour by itself. You're right. I don't want these things by themselves. But he finds out in the end, when he watched his mom bake a cake, that ultimately she knew what she was doing all along, even though it looked pretty weird in the process. And Alcorn says that's how we need to understand suffering. That's how we need to understand pain and evil in this life. Every individual evil experienced is unpleasant and heartbreaking, but in the end we will see God knows exactly what he's doing. But the cake ain't baked yet. See, God is more good than people are evil. And our hearts need to believe that. And people are wicked. But God is, man, he is infinitely good. God is more powerful. His purpose is more certain than the evil of others, than the devil himself. And he's more powerful than our circumstances. And many times, bitter people have chosen to believe that people are more evil than God is good. That providence is thwarted by circumstance. And that what someone intends towards you is more powerful than what God intends towards you. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. God is good. God's good hand has to be bigger than your hurt or your offender's sin against you. There can only be one sovereign person or thing in your life. There can only be one thing you look at, one person you look at and say that they have, abs- they have control, right? And if we give that to what's happened to us as opposed to the Lord Jesus himself, we allow ourselves to be put in a situation where we may grow to be bitter. But see, Joseph, in the midst of all this, he believed God was faithful. I said, you got to believe he's good, faithful, and providentially at work. He believed God was faithful. We don't see that, what I mean by that, to verse 24. We didn't read that, so let me read it to you. Genesis 50, 24, it says, as Joseph's preparing for death, he says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the the promise of the promised land. And that God had given a promise, right, all the way back to Abraham. And this is the first time we've heard Joseph explicitly mention that, uh, this whole idea. And so it's showing us that Joseph Joseph believed that God just wasn't just kind of obscurely at work, but that God was going to be faithful to keep the promise that he had gave his family. And this is important because, as one scholar pointed out, Joseph didn't get a, a divine epiphany, right? like Jacob, his father, did, like some of the others did, right? Like like his forefathers did, where God comes to them and speaks to them in this powerful way. I mean, Jacob wrestles, right, with the angel of the Lord. Joseph didn't get that kind of stuff, as far as we know. And I think if he did, it would be in the Scriptures. He gets some dreams and things like that, but he doesn't get this kind of divine encounter that his forefathers did. So what's he going off of? He says this, God swore. That's what he's got to go on. God swore. His word. He was clinging to God's spoken promise as passed down. He's clinging to what you and me are clinging to, the Word of God. And you and I, like Joseph, we don't have a divine epiphany, as they call it. God hasn't appeared to me. I don't think He's appeared to you. If he ha- Don't answer that. But we, we have His Word. He's, he's spoken to us through His Word, and we can claim the promises given in His Word. He will keep His promise. His Word is his sure. He's faithful. And the Gospel shapes us to be a people that trust that God is good, that God is faithful, he keeps his promises, and he's providentially at work. See, like Joseph, but way better, 
God used the suffering of Jesus to save many. Man meant evil against Jesus. They plotted and schemed to end Jesus, but God meant the cross for our good. In the gospel, God shows himself good towards sinners, providentially working for our good and his glory and faithful to keep his word, and that though our sins are as as scarlet, as Isaiah says, they can be white as snow. The cross of Jesus shouts that God is good, God is faithful, and God is providentially at work. In the cross, you've got the most evil act that's ever been committed in the history of man. From the human perspective, you've got the murder of the Son of God. Anything be more wicked than that? From the divine perspective, obviously, you've got God's plan, God's purpose, the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God working all this for our good, and that's how providence is working. It enables us to go through life and know, I'm going to experience evil, I'm going to experience suffering, I'm going to experience difficult things, but in Christ Jesus, I know, I know, God is good, God is faithful, and God is providentially at work, and the cross is a standing testimony to that. Number four, seek to bless and not hurt those that hurt you. It's the last one. Seek to bless and not hurt those that have hurt you. Joseph says, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is, first and foremost, let me say this, a fruit of Joseph's non-bitter, forgiving, unvengeful heart. He is providing. He is comforting. He is being kind. He is using his power to serve those who hurt him. Only someone not bitter and not carrying a grudge can do that. See, he had experienced and tasted of God's kindness, and so he was able to be kind to those who were unkind to him. So if you don't believe God has been kind to you, despite what someone else has done to you, you'll never be able to forgive or reconcile or be as kind as you should be or could be. But don't miss this. Joseph was already doing these things. He's he's just recommitting. He's already providing for them. He's already comforted them. He's already protected. He's just saying, now that dad has passed, I'm still going to do these things. He's not doing something he wasn't doing already. He's already doing all these things. He's been doing them for years while they were in Egypt already. That's why they came in the first place. He's not doing anything new here. He's saying, I'm going to continue to do this even though dad has passed. And Joseph is, here is acting a lot like Jesus said that we're supposed to act towards those who are considered our enemies. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 45 when he forgives them and brings his family in and brings his brothers in. He's showing kindness to those who have wronged him. In Luke 6, 27 and 28, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 28, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Think about that for a second. Love your enemies. We always say love your neighbor. And that's, we don't do real good at that. We do really horrible at loving our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 20 and 21. This is the second part of the verse I read earlier from Romans. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man. Listen, this doesn't mean if someone commits some heinous crime towards you that you don't call the law, press charges, and pray for justice. That is not at all what this means. Part of loving your neighbor is using God-ordained government to make sure people can't hurt other people, right? But it does mean that vengeance is not ours. 
it does mean we should pray for those who have sinned against us. I think it was hard for Joseph to let bitterness grow once he decided to bless his family. Once he made that decision in Genesis 45, by the time you get to Genesis 50, man, when he's, when he's blessing them and being kind to them and being generous to them, it makes it a lot harder to grow bitter towards them. Because you know, nobody, nobody made him do it. It'd be different if he was made to do it. It'd be different if he was made to do this. He didn't. He wasn't made to do it. He had all this power and he chose to bless them with it. It wasn't forced. And once in his heart he made that decision, it made it harder for bitterness and grudges to grow there. See, when we choose to obey Jesus and love and bless and pray for those who have betrayed us and slandered us and hurt us in some way, we are walking in faith and obedience and it's hard for bitterness to grow in an obedient heart. Because that's a heart where God is at work and He's cultivating and His Word's at work and His Spirit's at work and He's doing things in your heart and life is there and good things are growing there. That's not uncultivated soil anymore. Good things are being planted in that heart. And doesn't the Gospel show us that when, we're, when we were unkind, when we were enemies of God, that is when He sent His Son to die for us? That God's love for us was while we were yet sinners? Enemies of God? God blessed us when we were offering nothing but a curse. And the gospel transforms us into people that can bless those who curse us. That's what it does. That gospel and the news that God loved us while we were yet sinners enables us to love others while they're yet sinners against us. To pray for our enemies. See, the gospel has armed you with all you need to fight against a bitter heart. You can refuse to play God. We are crucified with Christ and that old life of trying to be God has been nailed to a rugged cross. We know who God is and we know who the judge is because God has shown it to all, as he says in Acts, by raising him from the dead. You can acknowledge wrong done and extend forgiveness. That's what God has done in Christ. That's what the cross is all about. The dealing with sin and the extending of forgiveness. And you can trust God is good, faithful, and providentially at working. The cross shows us how God can take the most evil thing and use it for our good. Jesus identifies with those who have been hurt, forsaken, sinned against. The cross shouts that God is good and faithful and providentially working at all times. And you can seek to bless and not hurt those that hurt you. This is what Jesus has done for you. What he's done for us. The gospel can make you into someone who does this too. See, Joseph is a great example, but Jesus is who he points to. Only Jesus shows us this example and at the same time can empower us to live a life free of bitterness. Joseph can't can't empower us. He can't save us from our bitter hearts and from our sin, and he can't empower us to live a life free of bitterness, but the Lord Jesus whom he points us to can. How about you today? Have you had your heart transformed? Have your sins been forgiven? If not, you need to, I beg you, repent and believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died in your place and rose again. Turn from your sin and trust him. Or are you, believer, are you starting to harbor bitterness from past hurt in your life? Are you withholding forgiveness from someone? Is there pain or suffering that you've went through that's caused you to be a little more callous towards God or towards his people? So what do I need to do? You need to believe the gospel. That's what we always need to do. And you need to make war on that. You need to war against it with the things of the Spirit, the Word of God, the promises of God, the Spirit of God. Take it to the Lord in prayer and pursue a life free of bitterness by enjoying God and walking in a gospel-shaped community. Where are you at today?
Are you cultivating a heart that's free of bitterness? Or are you laying ground for bitterness to grow there? A calloused heart. Let's pray. If you're here this morning,